When my telephone rang, it jerked me out of one nightmare and right into the middle of another, where a woman with a secret, a worried man, and a shadow out of the past met with fear and fury in the dead of night. From the pen of Raymond Chandler, outstanding author of crime fiction, comes his most famous character as CBS presents The Adventures of Philip Marlowe. And now, with Gerald Moore, starred as Philip Marlowe, we bring you tonight's exciting story, The Friend from Detroit. There was a wood nymph dressed in nothing but a veil of dewdrops. She was pirouetting from one huge bluebell to another on gossamer wings. And with every turn, she smiled came closer. But just as I reached out for a hand, something happened. The bluebells changed into old tomato cans and started to ring. A bandy-legged little man with a jackhammer went to work on my head. I fell over a cliff, and just before I landed on a red-hot pile of broken scotch bottles... Oh, I woke up. But the jackhammer didn't stop. I switched on the light and looked at my watch. It was one in the a.m., and the phone on my bed table was screaming for an answer. Hello? Marlo, this is Dave. Betty's gone. She's in trouble. You gotta help me, Marlo. You gotta come over to my apartment yeah, right away. Wait a minute, wait a minute. Who is this? Dave, Dave Pryor. I run the coffee joint on the corner. You know oh, me. Oh, yeah, yeah, sure, Dave. I remember. What's the matter? My wife, Betty, she's gone. You gotta help me. Dave, it's one o'clock in the morning. I'm in bed. Besides, you know I don't monkey with family quarrels. It's not like that, Phil. Believe me, I'm scared for her. Phil, please come over to the apartment. Two thousand beats would right away. It's okay, a matter of life. Okay, and... I'll be there in ten minutes. Marlo, I thought you'd never get here. Look, somebody fired a shot through the door, and when I got back with the aspirin, Betty was gone. All right, and I wait a minute, the... Dave, hold it. I'm not even awake yet. Look, sit down. Take it from the top. Slow. Yeah, okay. Maybe it started this morning at the coffee joint when a fancy guy came in and talked to Betty. She waits on the table. Yeah, yeah, know. yeah, I know. What do you mean, fancy? Well, a slick dresser, cufflink, stick pin, all that. I didn't know him, and Betty tossed him off to me as a masher. Maybe he was, but she seemed upset. Slower, by him. huh? Oh, yeah, sure. Well, tonight about nine, another guy came in, a chunky bird with a deep voice. Betty had just got back from shopping, and I was in the kitchen. See, when I heard a tray of dishes fall, and Betty came back, white as a sheet. She was scared, Phil, scared, scared. Hey! Oh, I, I, I'm sorry. All right. I... Go well, ahead. I looked out, and, and that chunky guy was leaving. Betty insisted he had nothing to do with it, that she was just nervous. Was somebody else in the place at the time? Uh, let's see. Yeah, some Tribune reporter that comes in every night was up at the counter. He was the only one. And Betty stayed on the job till you closed, huh? Yeah, till midnight. But, Phil, she was in a bad shape. Mm -hmm. After we got home here, she sent me out with some aspirin. I was only out for 15 minutes, Phil. When I came back, she was gone. And look, look, this bullet hole in the glass door to the backyard. Somebody out there shot at her. And maybe hit her All or something. All right, Dave, steady. Now take it easy. You and Betty have a gun? No. Why? Well, in the first place, the bullet went out through this glass. It didn't come in. And another thing, Dave, who, who did you call tonight after you phoned me? Why, nobody. Phone directory on the dresser here is open to the bees. Boone to wardrobe. Mean anything to you? No, I didn't even realize it was over there. I looked you up in the classified. Mm-hmm. Okay, come on, let's take a look in the backyard. Any light out there? Yeah, I rigged one up for the barbecue. Look, Marlo, there must take be it something easy. you... Now, we'll straighten this out, believe me. Now, let's see. The line of sight seems to run somewhere between the barbecue and the gate. 
No footprints, though. Maybe. Marlo. Hmm? Marlo, here by the tree, it's a hat. Gray snap brim, initials V... VR on the sweatband. VR? Mean anything to you? Why, no. Well, sure, that's Van Remini's hat. He's the newspaper guy I told you about. Tribune reporter that was in your place tonight? Yeah. Why should he be dodging bullets in your backyard? I don't know. Dave, where's Betty from? Detroit. When she came out here, I gave her a job. And then you both fell for each other and got married, huh? Yeah, two years ago next month. And we've been happy, Phil. We've been... Yeah, yeah, yeah. Now, look, Dave. Why did you call me instead of the cops? I... Well, I guess I'm afraid she's mixed up in, well, in something bad. You know, if it turns out that way, I'll have to call him myself. Okay, Phil. But you're on my side until you know for sure. Yeah, yeah. All right, now you stay here close to your phone. Okay. I'll check with you. Right now, I gotta get a line on a bareheaded reporter. He can get us started if he hasn't lost anything more than his hat when I find him. So long, Dave. <laughs> Porter's hat, two strangers, and a bullet hole somehow added up to the fast fade of a hard-working kid named Betty, whose husband's only claim to fame was selling the best cup of coffee in town. It made no sense, but as I walked up the street toward my car, I figured that through Van Remini, I could get to the first answer. I was wrong. The first answer got to me. A thick hedge suddenly sprouted arms. One jerked me around while the other held the cold throat of a forty-five against my throat. Your car registration tag says your name is Philip Marlowe. No kidding. How do you suppose that happened? But it doesn't mention your racket. Shamus, maybe? Could be. And you? I'm a tourist. Oh, sure, sure. Just out to see the sights. That's huh? it. One in particular. $25,000 that belongs to me. I don't want any interference from you or that square inside there. You mean Dave Pryor? I mean Dave Pryor. I'll go back in there and tell him to cool off. A little woman is all right. She's just helping an old friend, you might say. Might I say you're the friend? Never mind. Unless Mr. Jitters in there kicks up a fuss, everything will be fine. Betty knows what she's doing. She's got a lot of talent for it. Too much to waste slinging hash. And remember what I said, Marlowe. Lay off. I'll remember more than that about you, Foghorn. Just remember to count ten before you move, boy. Well, there's no point in trying to outsmart a forty-five. And with three steps, Foghorn vanished in the night. Also gone was a big chunk of my respect for a doll named Betty Pryor and her taste in old friends. Just so I wasn't jumping to conclusions, I went to my car and drove down to Hollywood Boulevard. At the first all-night gas station, I stopped and put in a call to the Tribune. Where a guy on the desk told me, through a mouthful of mangled cigar, that unless Remini was at Bungalow 24, Beverly Crest Hotel, covering the murder of an ex-Detroit hood, he was fired. Then he hung up. But the one word, Detroit, made the call a jackpot. So I headed for the hotel on the double. It was pink and Spanish and squatted in a grove of well-behaved palm trees at the edge of a domesticated jungle, which gave the illusion of privacy to a string of bungalows that weren't. But number 24 had all the privacy of a glass-faced cutaway beehive when I pulled up in the middle of two squad cars in an ambulance and went inside. Sprawled on the floor in front of a desk was a very well-dressed Exhibit A. Complete with cufflinks and stick pin and presiding as usual was Detective Lieutenant Ibarra, who didn't see me until I walked up beside him. What are you doing here, Marlowe? I can smell blood clear across town. What's the story, Ibarra? The name is Speck Willard, a gambler from Detroit, retired out here to California a few years back to play horses and women. He was shot to death at about 8 o'clock tonight by a person or a persons unknown. Another gang jam? No, I don't think so. Looks more like armed robbery that got out of hand. How so? We found a currency wrapper from a local bank that read $25,000 in an open drawer in the bedroom. And one of the bellhops saw a woman, unidentified so far, run out of here about the time the coroner says that Willard was shot. A woman? Yeah. 
That fits because he was known to be quite a nightclubber and general playboy. You wouldn't happen to know something about this woman, would you, Marlowe? Me? Certainly not. <laughs> no, I'm after a man, a live one, I hope. Mm-hmm. Well, look, Marlowe, take this nickel. Hmm? In case you should just happen to hear something, I want you to spend that on a phone call to the police department. <laughs> now, who is it you're looking for? A Tribune reporter named Van Remini, you know him? Unfortunately, that's him over there, the sticky-fingered one by the window, swiping that book of matches just now, the one without a hat. Oh, yeah, yeah, I know. Thanks, Lieutenant, I'll see you. Hey, uh, Remini, can I talk to you a minute? Yeah, sure, what's on your mind? I'm Philip Marlowe, private detective. Well, don't apologize. What's up, Marlo? Know a girl named Betty Pryor? Pryor? Mm-hmm, yeah. Yeah. She and her husband run a one-arm joint on Franklin, don't they? That's right, Remini. I understand Betty got into a little trouble tonight. Heard about it? Nope. Wouldn't worry, though. Trouble's not new to Betty. Yeah, that's one popular school of thought. Incidentally, you seem to be going a long ways out of your way on this run-of-the-mill murder story, Remini. You're taking a long way around to the point, pal. Get with it. I'm in a hurry. Okay, pal. But keep it under your hat. Won't you? The gray one, I mean. Oh, so that's how Yeah, it that's is. the way it is, yeah. Now, do you mind telling me what you saw in Pryor's backyard tonight? You name it. Shall I play dumb or lie? Suit yourself. See, my press card's just as good as your license, sweetheart. It gets me in, gets me out again. In my dodge, that's called reporting. Remini, I'll squeeze the truth out of you eventually. I'm sorry, I can't wait. I've got a deadline. Anything else? Yeah, one thing, a match. Yeah, sure, Marlowe, any time. Thanks. Mm-hmm. And, uh, Remini. Yeah? Don't hang on too long, huh? Labless singe your pinkies. The reporter blew out the match and looked at me steadily for a moment. And his lips shaped a word I ignored. Then he walked away. I had seen enough of the book of matches he'd stolen to know it was a mistarchist room, a glossy, glass roof, dine, dance, and drink emporium near Arthur Murray's studio on Wiltshire Boulevard. So I made like I was in for the night and watched Remini leave. All the way to his car, he kept looking back over his shoulder as if he expected to be followed. I waited till he was out of sight, and then I headed for Wiltshire in the Starkist room. But when I got there, it was closed. Remini's car wasn't in the neighborhood, and the only thing that kept the trip from being a total loss was a spotlighted picture. Ten feet square of a sultry, svelte chanteuse labeled Carla Borden. Who's come on in smile and almost costume was a cinch to increase the accident rate of the block by 20%. But then I took another look at her name and got back to business. It started with a B, as in phone book, opened a boon and Bordeaux. I found a directory, got it open to boon and Bordeaux, and halfway down the page was Borden, Carla, 2840 North Lucerne. It took ten minutes to get there and two more to find out that she had an apartment, number 17, at the end of the first floor hall. The door was open and I started for it, but stuck back close to the elevator when a woman came out and ran down the corridor toward me. It was Betty Pryor. Hold it, Betty! Whoa! What? Marlowe, what are you... Never mind the stall, Betty. I've been in a long time. Why, I don't know what you're talking about. Now, look, you left a pretty worried guy at home. Dave, did he send you after me? That's right. Why can't you fools leave me alone? Why does he have to be so stupid? Hey, you've got a few ideas mixed up, kid. Oh, sure, I'm wrong. I'm the one who's all mixed up. <laughs> Let go of Not me. Not until you... I've got a couple of things straight. Now, what happened? Did life in a hamburger stand get a little stale? Yes, you two-bit snoop. Okay. 
Dave thinks you're in trouble. I think you're in trouble, and I think somebody waved a few bills at you, and you lost your grip. Why? And you're in so deep now, you can't get out, and it's no more than you deserve. Now, come on. We're going right back down the hall to Carla's apartment. We're going to have a little chat, just the three of us. No, I won't. Let Come on. Take your hands off, Marlo. Stand still. Well, like two chums, the foghorn and its 45 caliber equalizer. Easy does it. You were lucky the first time. Well, Betty, did you get it? No, something went wrong. Something terrible went wrong. Marlo isn't Steve. We'll talk after he's out of the way. All right, you. Get in that elevator, chum. And we'll wait right here to see you leave. Get on here. here. That 45 makes you awful brave, chum. <laughs> this way we don't offend the lady by being uncouth. And you get a chance to go up in the world. Just put your finger on a button. Now, wait a Come minute. Come on. All right. Now, all you have to do is push. In just a moment, we will return to the second act of the adventures of Philip Marlowe. But first, the most famous neighbors in radio, the Ronald Coleman's, will pay Jack Benny a visit again tomorrow as CBS's great Sunday night gets underway with another star-studded group of famous entertainers. Amos and Andy, Lum and Abner, Eve Arden as the gay schoolmistress, our Miss Brooks, and Helen Hayes as a hillbilly. These are only four more of the ten great entertainments which will come your way tomorrow night. Go visiting with the Coleman's on all of these same stations on the Jack Benny Show and hear the rest of CBS's great Sunday Night 10 as they come one by one over most of these stations. And now with our star, Gerald Moore, we return to the second act of Philip Marlowe and tonight's story, The Friend from Detroit. Cage on cables with ten exasperating seconds getting to the next floor. And I was another ten getting free of it back down the stairs and out into the dark street where the red splash of a taillight disappeared around a corner. And that was all that was left of Foghorn and company. So I turned back toward Carla Borden's room. When I stepped across the threshold, I found that with the exception of a single bureau that was still intact, apartment number 17 looked like it had just played host to the vortex of a cyclone. A bed, a chest of drawers, another bureau, a desk, everything was inside out. And in the middle of all that was the body of Carla Borden. Blood from a deep, ugly cut on her head, staining the snow-white front of her Angora sweater. I saw something else, which reminded me that this was not the first corpse of the night. The plush leather frame was shaped like an oversized lifesaver, and in it was the picture of a handsome man, all smiles, inscribed, With love to my very best girl. Speck Willard. It was ten minutes before I got Tennessee Barra, who was still up at the Beverly Crest Hotel. And after I told him about Collar and her connection with the late Mr. Willard and Betty Pryor and my connection with Dave, I stopped talking and listened. Marla, we just learned that Willard had some kind of a $25,000 caper going with one of his old mobster friends from Detroit, named Joe Lazar. Who maybe is something with a voice and active below bottom? The same, Phil. Anyhow, it looks like they worked out a gambling deal for old time's sake. At the last minute, Willard tried to welch on Lazar and got killed for his trouble. Then Lazar searched the place until he found the 25000 No, no, no. That part doesn't fit, Ibarra. How so? Well, I've run into Lazar twice tonight. I know he and the money are still strangers. Oh? After what happened here with the team of Betty and Lazar getting to the singer Carla, I figure they're still looking for it. Also, I figure Carla was somewhere near when Lazar killed Speck Willard and that she took the money and... I'll call you later, Ibarra. We got clumsy company in the hall outside. 
All right, ballerina, get your foot out of that bucket and come on in with your hands up. Well, <laughs> the man with the very long nose for news. What brings you around, Remini? For one thing, the fact that you got no corner on brains, Marlowe, and for another... Who did that to her? Our mutual friend, Betty Pryor, and her running mate. I believe they were looking for 25000 bucks. Did she and Joe Lazar get the money, Marlowe? No, they... Hey, Remini, how did you know the man with Betty was named Joe Lazar? Haven't you heard? I'm a good reporter, Marlowe. The mm. kind that keeps eyes and ears open and mouth shut. It isn't until I know the whole story. Which, as far as you're concerned, is precisely what? That I happen to you be... You happen to be? That I happen to be in Dave's restaurant early this evening where I recognize the only other cash customer is Joe Lazar. Oh. An out-of-work mobster from Detroit. He said something to Betty that scared her right out of a tray of dishes, so I figured I'd find out what was going on. I've been in on the show ever since. Yeah. Including a corny blackout up at 2000 Beachwood Drive where you lost your hat running away from a bullet. That's right. Yeah. And just so you don't toss and turn when you get around to going to bed tonight, I'll fill in the rest. I followed Betty and Dave from the restaurant to their apartment. I watched her get rid of Dave, and then when I saw Lazar come in, I moved up close to the window. And stayed there. Until Lazar spotted you and threw a bullet your way? You're very clever. Yes, I am, man. But before that happened, I heard him tell Betty that Speck Willard had talked about a girl singer at the Starkist room named uh, Carla Borden. And that since he didn't know Carla on sight, she could have been a lady he'd seen running out of Speck's apartment with a 25 gram. Oh, now that phone book of Dave's open to the bees ties in. I'm so glad. Now, Marlowe, lest we digress too far, how come this one bureau here hasn't been turned upside down along with everything else? I don't know. Any more than I know why you're holding back so much from the law. Well, maybe it's because I don't like cops, Marlowe. Oh, black ones. Or maybe it's because I'm in the same kind of racket as you. Chin way out and a lot of fast talk, just so papers can know what's going on an hour ahead of the rest of the world. Well, there's no 25000 in here. I got a blow. Before Ibarra shows? Before Ibarra shows. He always arrives with an entourage, Marlowe, one that includes other news hounds. So it's me for a fast cab in downtown and my paper with a story. Go on, fellow. I'll see you around. Hey, wait a minute, Remini. Yeah? I'll give you a lift. I'm going that way myself. Okay. I got a story, too. A lousy story. I've got to tell a nice guy named Dave. Come on. time we drove, Remini half-faced me and smoked one cigarette after another while he rattled no, on about Joe Lazar. The no, great story he had and a lot of other things I didn't hear because I was busy trying to find the right words with no which to tell Dave Pryor that his wife was no good. So when we were about halfway to Beachwood Drive and Remini, who was pushing close to his deadline, decided to get out and phone a story in from a drugstore, I was glad. So long, Marlowe. second after that, I knew I was kidding myself. Because even with just silence for company, I was still no place with the right words. Ten minutes later, when I stood in front of Dave on the steps to his house and stammered out the facts just as I had run across them, I forgot about words, right or wrong. But thought instead about my client, a badly hurt guy, but one who would never say die. Marlowe, I can't believe all this. I won't. Tell me. Where's Betty now? I don't know, Dave. Now, look, maybe we ought to head for police headquarters because sooner or later we're each going to have a story to tell Lieutenant Ibarra. Come on, my car's over here. Okay, Phil. I guess that's the only thing to do, all right. Yeah, I guess so. Here. Better have a cigarette, Davey. Oh, thanks. 
Kid, we'll try to make this as painless as we... As we what, Marlowe? What is it? Hmm? Well, what are you staring at? Front seat. But I don't see anything, Phil. What is it? Shut what are you up, staring Dave. At? Shut up. Give me a minute, will you? Yeah. Yeah, sure. Come on, Dave. Pile in. But why, Marlowe? Where are we going? Star kiss room to play a long shot. my foot down hard on the accelerator and kept it that way right through a string of I didn't care what color traffic lights until five minutes later when we screeched to a stop away from the side entrance to the Starkist room. I left Dave in the front seat, piled out fast, and ran a dozen yards to an abrupt halt at the sight of something that turned the long shot I was playing into, a, into an odds-on favorite. It was the stage entrance door open a couple of inches and in front of that and unconscious on the hard sidewalk where it had fallen was a clad in blue form of a private patrolman, his pistol holster conspicuously empty. Inside, I slowly picked my way along an L-shaped corridor until I saw a shaft of bright yellow from a flashlight that was moving away from a door marked Carla Borden. It brought me up short and flat against the wall. But then as the man on the other end of the beam of light moved away from me, I... I got a very steady grip on the 38 in my pocket and started after him. A minute later, he entered the main room of the club, and it was there as he started across the glass ceiling dance floor that I recognized the very self-confident gait of a very self-confident guy. And that made the next move mine. Bar's closed, what? Remini, and don't move, Buster. I'll blow your head off. Ah, looks like you're making news this time, good reporter. Or isn't that package in your hand the 25 grand you just found in Carla Borden's dressing room, huh? The same Carla Borden you murdered not an hour ago in an apartment on Lucerne, where you first thought the money was, where Betty Pryor surprised you before you could finish searching, where you later returned in the role of an all-American newsboy so you could get to that last bureau. All right, all right, I've heard enough, Marlowe. But I'm not going to stick around for more details. You make a break and I'll shoot, Remini. Try it, Eagle. Stop, Remini, stop! Uh, Nice shooting, Marlowe. But don't turn around because where I'm standing, it's dark. And where you're standing, it's light. Now throw your gun away, fella. Come on, toss it! That's better. All right, Betty. Get over to that dead newspaper guy and get the money. Uh, we'll take care of the private detective here. What do you mean, take care, Joe? I I can't go along with murder. Speck Willard's death didn't seem to bother you any. Shut up, Marlowe. Speck Willard! Joe, you... Joe, you killed... Yes, I killed Speck, that... Welcher. Eight o'clock tonight. And I had to stay undercover, but still get my hands on the money. So, I came to you for help. But I didn't tell you about the killing, because I didn't think you'd play ball if you knew about it. Now, all that's history now, and I'll still go to your dear husband, Dave, and talk lots about the kind of cheap kid you used to be in Detroit if you don't get moving. Now, what do you say, Betty? I say no, Joe. I also say I made a mistake in the first place letting you use me to run your filthy errands. Just so the guy I love wouldn't have to know about the kind of people I once ran around with before I had any brains. All right. That's the dumb way you want it. That's the dumb way it'll be. Taking care of two years is much harder than taking care of one. What about three, Lazar? Dave! Dave, stay back! No, Marlowe, no. I've stayed back too long already. I've stayed back while Betty has been risking her life to protect what we've got. If you take another step out, shoot, kid. I'm warning you for the last time. Stay back! No, Lazar, I won't! <laughs> you thinking no. scum, Lazar? <laughs> Yeah, but but I'll be all right. I'll be all right now, Betty. Dr. Reese, 
Dr. Reese, please report to surgery. Well, Mrs. Pryor, Harlow, the please doctor please says that Dave's going to surgery. be fine in a couple of days. Yeah. Caught one on the shoulder, the other on the hip. He certainly had courage, didn't he? Yeah, and you did all right, too, Betty. Mixing in this whole mess just to keep the home fires burning. Uh, Tell me, whatever Dr. made you Reese, think that a guy like Dave wouldn't understand that you turned over a new leaf? Well, Dr. I... Reese wanted in I don't know, Phil. I guess I wasn't very smart. No, you weren't, Mrs. Pryor, but you're lucky because Marlowe here was. And that brings me around to a loose end, Phil. How did you know that Remini was your man? No, that. Because of something I saw in the upholstery of the front seat of my car, Ibarra. Tufts of snow-white angora, which was the kind of sweater that Carla Borden had on when she was murdered after they struggled. And since you didn't touch the body yourself, they couldn't have come from your suit. No. And Remini was the only other one who had been in my car. So I figured that the Angora fuzz had gone from Carla's sweater to Remini's suit to my upholstery. All of which means that Remini must have been in Carla's room before I got there as well as after, see? And then once I thought back about his getting out of my car to phone his story in, I... Well, I realized that when I dropped him near a drugstore, he had also been near the Starkist room. Yes. That's exactly where he'd headed. Mm-hmm. You see, Phil, Joe and I followed both of you from Carla Borden's place because... Well, after Joe put you in that elevator and we ran, Joe said we had to return and wait for Remini, who was sure to come back and finish his search. And the whole business, because Lazar, after he had murdered Speck Willard, was afraid to publicly go after Carla Borden and the money he felt was his. Yes. He knew about me and Dave because Speck Willard accidentally dropped into our place this morning. Uh, correction, for... baby. What? Yesterday morning. Oh. It's now 9 a.m. Oh. <clears throat> and a good time to call quits, huh? <laughs> good night, kids. Well, by the time I got back to my apartment on Franklin, it was half past ten in the too bright morning. I was sporting sandpaper eyelids and a knot in the small of my back that felt like a wet dish rag. Oh, but once I had all the shades down and was undressed and in bed, I forgot about that. And I thought instead of the wood nymph dressed in nothing, hmm, with a veil of dewdrops. But then suddenly I stopped. The telephone. I got out of bed. I picked it up with both hands, opened the dresser drawer, and jammed it deep under all the socks I owned. And then I got back to bed. And the wood nymph in her veil of dewdrops. She was she was pirouetting from one huge bluebell to another. Oh my! On gossamer wings. Adventures of Philip Marlowe, created by Raymond Chandler, stars Gerald Moore, and is produced and directed by Norman MacDonald. Script is by Mel Dinelli, Robert Mitchell, and Gene Levitt. Featured in the cast were Virginia Gregg as Betty Pryor, Peter Leeds as Dave Pryor, Harry Bartell as Van Remini, and Ed Begley as Joe Lazar. Lieutenant Detective Ibarra was played by Jeff Corey. The special music was by Richard O'Rant. <laughs>
Be sure and be with us again next week when Philip Marlowe says... It was a hunt through a jungle of city streets with danger waiting at every intersection until halfway through when the hunters became the hunted and death brought an end to the game. Coleman's visiting Jack Benny, plus Amos and Andy, Eve Arden, and Helen Hayes as a hillbilly. Yes, that earlier announcement about CBS programs tomorrow night sounded great, didn't it? Except you Philip Marlowe fans may have been wondering, isn't there a mystery show among that great Sunday night 10 on CBS? Of course there is. One of the great detectives in the mystery world, Dashiell Hammett's one and only Sam Spade. Sam will be here, hard-hitting, fast-moving as always, tomorrow night on most of the same CBS network stations. This is Roy Rowan speaking. Now, stay tuned for Gangbusters, which follows immediately over most of the same CBS stations. This is CBS, the Columbia Broadcasting System. It was a hunt through a jungle of city streets with danger waiting at every intersection until halfway through when the hunters became the hunted. And death brought an end to the game. From the pen of Raymond Chandler, outstanding author of crime fiction, comes his most famous character as CBS presents... The Adventures of Philip Marlowe. Now, with Gerald Moore, starred as Philip Marlowe, we bring you tonight's exciting story, The Grim Hunters. The morning paper had headlined prices rising. My bank statement in the afternoon mail had worn balance falling. And I had wasted the evening on behalf of a client who ran out on me when I tried to collect. All of which added up to the end of the day and me unhappy in my office at 10 p.m. With one hand on my checkbook and the other one raised in almost solemn oath. I, Philip Marlowe, private detective and too often public servant, hereby resolve to one way or another jockey my budget into something close to equilibrium. And from this day for... Hello, Marlowe speaking. My name is Helen Palmer, Marlowe. I need your help badly. Yeah, but look, I... I'm up at 8700 Magnolia Terrace in the Hollywood Hills. Now, please, drop whatever you're doing and... No. No. No! I must have let go of the phone, grabbed my hat and coat, opened and closed the office door, piled into my car outside and raced up into the Hollywood Hills because the next thing I remember after Helen Palmer's scream was swinging off North Bronson Drive onto Magnolia Terrace. But a minute later, when I scraped to a stop away from number 8700, scrambled out from under the wheel and started on the run for the front door. I was no longer sure of anything. 
Because the house in question, a stock southern mansion, complete with stable boy statue and a gravel driveway, which according to the book should have been as dark and as quiet as the inside of a coffin, was anything else but. And when I got to the oversized bronze door knocker and dropped it hard, I was beginning to doubt that I had the right address. Can I be of some assistance, sir? I don't know. I'm looking for a woman named Helen Palmer who called me at my office. Said she needed help. And the second after that, she... Screamed, huh? <laughs> Tell me, sir, what is your name and occupation? In that order, Philip Marlowe, private detective. <laughs> good for Helen, good for Happy, girl. aren't you? What's going on here? What is this? Why, it's a party, sir. A scavenger hunt. It looks like Helen Palmer's the Now, winner. wait a minute, laughing boy. I had a call that was interrupted by pistol shots, and I... <laughs> All just part of the play, sir. Yeah, Helen Palmer had to bring back one private detective. Oh. <laughs> Yeah, you see, Marlowe, each list, aside from the usual hard-to-find objects, had a human being on it. That's right. I had to bring back a Hoover vacuum cleaner salesman, and believe it or not, he's already sold our good host, Thaddeus Grover, the deluxe model. <laughs> <laughs> yes, sir, he did it bad. You see, Mr. Marlowe, Helen Palmer wasn't permitted to actually hire you. That's why she had to pretend to be in trouble. With well, a net result that I nearly broke my neck getting up here. Mr. Grover, where is Miss Palmer? Well, I don't know for sure, Marlowe. She called just a bit ago and said that she only had to catch on to you and one other item and it'd be back after that. Which makes her the winner, Mr. Marlowe, because none of us did better than half our list. Oh, by the by, you don't happen to have the breech lock of a 57-millimeter anti-tank gun with you. <laughs> At the moment, no. Nor do I have time for scavenger hunters. Not even when they most cordially invite you in with the finest serve and a party-style southern fried chicken imaginable. Come on, Mr. Marlowe. Oh, no, I'm sorry. Oh, I... come, come on, come well, on, come on. It's delicious chicken. Well, okay, the chicken did it. <laughs> the inside of Thaddeus Grover's house was also stocked southern mansion from a giant cut glass punch bowl. Belonged to my mother, sir, first lady of Atlanta, Georgia, sir, to a wide and winding colonial staircase. It left you expecting the descent of Scarlett O'Hara at any moment. There was one strange note in the soft southern surroundings. Piled three feet high in the middle of the room were the crazy quilt results of the evening scavenger hunt including a wooden cigar store Indian, a pair of Hickok suspenders from the local fire chief, one red motorcycle, a stuffed owl, a set of antlers, and more. And behind all that, my counterparts, the bring-em-back-alive items from each list, a streetcar conductor in uniform, a waiter bald and under 40, a schoolteacher red-headed and over 50. But I was the center of attention. But Thaddeus introduced one after another of the guests to the genuine, 100% non-shrinkable private detective. And now, Mr. Marlowe, sir, a very special friend of mine. At 31, sir, the president of Sample and Claiborne, best building contractors in the city of Los Angeles. Oh, that's so very interesting, Mr. Grover. Yeah, moreover, Mr. Marlowe, Sample made it right to the top in the past two years. Uh-huh. Yeah, ever since old Joshua Claiborne got killed falling off a scaffold. He did. Because between you and me and the gatepost, some folks say it was suicide. Oh, Larry! Larry uh, boy, I, I'd like you to meet Mr. Marlowe, private detective. Mr. Marlowe, Larry Sample. How do you do? Hello, Mr. Marlowe. Glad you're with us. Uh, Hideous has Rhonda called in yet. Last time I heard from her was when we split our list in two and she headed out after a Latin American rumba team. <laughs> well, if she went after a boss, she'll bring her back. That's Rhonda Langley we're speaking of, Mr. Marlowe, Larry's lady friend. Oh? Nicest person I know. Except, of course, my fiance, Helen. Helen is in Palmer, my patron, Mr. Grover. <laughs> yes, sir. One and the same, sir. Well, we certainly have a lot of fun, even if we don't make much money, eh, Marlowe? Yeah, you certainly. <laughs> 
Mr. Grover, did you say money? Most surely did, boy. You know, dollars and cents. Yes. Well, gentlemen, you'll excuse me, please, but I do have to run. Good night, Mr. Sample. And Mr. Grover, sir, it's been a distinct pleasure, sir. I bid you goodbye, sir. Goodbye, sir. You're a card. (laughs) When I got back to my office, which I had left lights on and unlocked, my telephone was ringing. At this late hour, gullible me took faint hope that it could be a client who might still save the day. When I picked up the receiver... Marlowe? I let go of that straw fast. Marlowe. It was Detective Lieutenant Ibarra. Marlowe, do you know a girl named Helen Palmer? Helen Palmer? Ibarra, don't tell me there's a pair of somewhat flat feet on the lady's scavenger hunt list. Very funny, Phil. How do you know her? No, not beyond a panic telephone call that ended in a make-believe scream and a couple of pistol shots. All designed to bring me running to a party at 8700 Magnolia Terrace. Mm-hmm. Well, that adds all right, because the only items not checked off a list are a night watchman's badge and one detective private, which must be you. Since your name is circled in the classified directory here in this phone booth. Here in what phone booth? Where are you, Ibarra? At a closed filling station on Van Ness off Hollywood Boulevard. Yeah, but wait a minute. Why is a girl's list there with you? Because it's clenched in her right hand, Phil. And she's folded up on the floor of this booth. Dead. Oh, no. Two bullet holes in her back. Oh, yeah, but, but Ibarra, her call was a gag. The shots weren't. Anyhow, it looks like a stick-up since the lady's purse is gone and a wino we Who? picked up. A wino we picked up saw what he calls a curly-headed guy with short legs do it and run. Also, the wino says that the murderer had been hanging around for a couple of hours like he was looking for a well-to-do prospect. Yeah, I know, but it's still kind of strange. Me getting that call, I mean. Well, I'll drop around to headquarters tomorrow morning, Lieutenant, if you need any statement from me. I think you'd better make that tonight, Phil. At the 8700 address. I'm sending Mooney up there now. Oh, but wait a minute, Ibarra. You don't need me, and I do need business. If you think I'm going to get it by... Phil. Huh? Phil, let's say that I'd appreciate it if you'd show for a few minutes. Okay? No. Well, okay, a few minutes. Just so long as you appreciate it. Goodbye. Driving back to Magnolia Terrace, I used Detective Lieutenant Ibarra as an oversized whipping boy for the day's disappointments. So when I finally break to a stop behind a half-parked squad car, which meant that police officer Mooney was already on hand, I was about back to normal. But then in the next quick moment, I forgot all about Ibarra because in the shadows ahead, sneaking away from a side entrance to number 8700, looking as guilty as Lucretia Borgia leaving a corner pharmacy, was a young lady, brunette and beautiful. She hurried directly to a gray Nash parked in the rear and without looking back, climbed in and took off. Following her had to be more fun than conversation with Mooney. Ten minutes later, the lady came to a stop in front of a dark, politely landscaped cottage on North Ogden Drive. In another two, she was inside and the light was on. When I got to the front door and leaned against the bell, a card over it said that this could be one Rhonda Langley, Mr. Larry Sample's girlfriend. That same card also gave another name, Helen Palmer, the lady down booth. I rang again. When the door opened, it was the brunette, still beautiful. Only this time, something had been added. In her right hand, a forty-five, ugly and pointed straight at my head. What do you want? One straight answer, Miss Langley. <clears throat> Why did you run away from 8700 Magnolia Terrace and a cop with routine questions? Wait a minute. Who are you? How do you know my name? I'm a private detective, labeled Philip Marlowe. Item number eight on the late Miss Palmer's list. And I know about you because I've already been to Thaddeus Grover's party. 
Now, after you put this gun away, Sorry. we'll get back to my question. Why'd you run? Come on, talk, lady, now before I yell copper. Well, all right. Come in. Thanks. Mr. Marlowe, I don't think Helen Palmer's murder was any run-of-the-mill robbery. You don't think what? I stayed just long enough to hear the policeman say Helen had been killed. Oh. When I got to your welcome, Matt, I was greeted with a forty-five. Talk some more, Miss Langley. Real plain-like, well, right. huh? Give me half a chance, will you? I didn't say anything to the police about this because I don't want to do any damage before I'm sure about a few things. Like what? Like the kind of a mess that Helen was in. Mr. Marlowe, I need help. I- I've got to know some facts. Please, will you work for me? I'll pay you anything. Well, at this point, let's call anything 25 a day in expenses, huh? Uh, About Helen and the mess you spoke of, how much do you know? Very little. Only that I think Helen was blackmailing somebody. Somebody who was at the party tonight. Like Grover, your boyfriend Larry Sample? I don't know. Oh, you've got to believe me, Mr. Marlowe. Well, all right. For the time being, I will. Now, first of all, how'd you latch on to this blackmail? Well, yesterday morning, I accidentally overheard Helen talking to someone on the telephone. She spoke of a payoff that was to be made at Thaddeus's party. I don't know who she was talking to, but she warned the person not to try anything rash. As in murder? She didn't say. But she did say that she'd already airmailed a letter to her lawyers in San Francisco that would protect her from any harm. And she laughed about the scheduled scavenger hunt and hung up. Mm-hmm. You said nothing to her about this, huh? Well, no, I, I was afraid... All right, the letter to San Francisco. Did you see her mail it? Well, I mailed it myself earlier in the day, along with one of my own. Mm-hmm. I didn't think about it until after her call, when she pointedly asked me if I'd remembered to mail a letter. Uh, my letter, that is which she knew that I'd written to an aunt I have in Passaic, New Jersey. Well? Well, that's the whole story. If you want me, I'll be over at Thaddeus's place. Thaddeus? Yes. He was in love with Helen. Yeah. Maybe she was returning that love with blackmail. What do you think, Rhonda? I don't know. The thinking is now your job, Mr. Marlowe. When I left Rhonda Langley and started back to my car as a bona fide private detective with client, I wasn't sure whether or not I was happy about the whole thing. But a second later, at the sight of a man in the dark ahead, half crouched behind a tree, I quit deliberating the point and got ready for trouble because, from what I could see, the gentleman in hiding had both the curly hair and very short legs that Ibarra had mentioned as a sign of Helen Palmer's killer. I kept walking straight until I was abreast the tree, then I pivoted sharply, took one step toward him, and swung! <laughs> Come on, brother. Why, you dirty... We haven't got the time. They believe me. Enough, fella. Enough. Will you leave me alone? Sure. Sure I will. After you start talking. Now, get up. Okay. Okay, don't hit me again. I'll talk. I'll tell you everything. Hey. Hey, look there. No. No, don't. Oh, that lousy note. just a moment, we will return to the second act of The Adventures of Philip Marlowe. But first, you can do a lot of singing for $14,500, so they say. And tonight, some CBS listener may be able to speak with authority on the subject because $14,500 is what's waiting for whoever can solve the mystery behind the new Phantom Voice on CBS's great Saturday night quiz game, Sing It Again. Listeners from coast to coast will be quizzed by telephone about the new Phantom's identity. And they'll also be given a chance to win one of the other famous prizes for solving the riddle songs which feature Sing It Again's Hour of Saturday Night Fun. Here's Sing It Again on most of these same CBS network stations tonight and every Saturday night. 
Now, with our star, Gerald Moore, we return to the second act of Philip Marlowe and tonight's story, The Grim Hunters. Shots crashed out of the darkness. The life ran out of the little man like air from a kid's balloon. I couldn't figure exactly where the shots had come from, and I stopped trying when a pair of spiked heels clicked fast across the concrete driveway between me and the house. Then a motor started, and a second later, a car roared by with Rhonda Langley at the wheel. I yelled at her to stop as she went by, and ran out in the street after her and yelled again at the retreating car. But she ignored me. When another car came around the curve behind me, I tried to flag it down, but the driver didn't even slow up. So I just stood there while the two cars twisted out of sight down the winding street, leaving nothing but silence and a lot of unanswered questions hanging in midair. I walked back to the corpse, went over it carefully. But there was no identification, nothing but a gun to indicate how he fitted into the screwy mosaic of murder, scavenging, and blackmail. I went inside to call Ibarra, and five minutes of tracers, relays, and busy signals went by before I finally got through to him with my news about Helen Palmer's killer. What? Uh, where are you, Marlowe? In a house on Ogden Drive, 4310 North. It was shared by Helen Palmer, my new client, Rhonda Langley. Uh-huh. Did she kill my suspect, Marlowe? It could be. She left here in a big hurry. Another thing, Ibarra, there's more behind this business than robbery. Like what? Like blackmail. Maybe so. We just found the Palmer's girl handbag in a trash can. Nothing left but a lipstick and two letters. Incidentally, one is addressed to your client, Rhonda Langley. That figures. They shared the house, so Helen happened to pick up the day's mail. What's the other letter? It was one return for insufficient postage. They forgot that airmail is six cents these days. A return? Wait a minute. Is that letter addressed to a law firm in San Francisco? No, it's addressed to Sophie Kilbirdie. Sophie of... kill who? Kilbirdie of oh. Passaic, New Jersey. Why? Well, Ibarra, listen. Helen was blackmailing somebody, and she covered herself by mailing a letter to her lawyers in San Francisco. Mm -hmm. If that letter was returned for insufficient postage and the blackmail victim knew it, he'd have no qualms about killing her, right? Sure, but the letters were in Helen's purse. Oh. Don't you think she'd have known her protection was gone? Phil, I'm going to put out a pickup call on your client. And you get on down here so we can go over this mess one step at a time. Where's here? Still at the gas station on Van Ness off Hollywood Boulevard. Okay, Barra. How long are you going to be there? Just until Thaddeus Grover shows up to identify the body and give me some answers personally about that scavenger hunt he threw tonight. What about this curly-headed corpse I've got here? Have you gone over him? Yeah, yeah. Nothing but a gun, some small bills on him. Then he'll keep. I'll expect you in a few minutes. Okay. So long, Ibarra. When I put down the phone, I was convinced that a big switch was due any minute because... Finding those letters in Helen Palmer's purse made a lot of sense in one direction and not a bit in another. I could have made more heads and tails by flipping a ball bearing than I got out of the facts he borrowed given me. Just then, the shadow of a man slid up the walk. I heard a pair of feet mount the stairs two at a time. It was the Wonderboy executive I'd met at the party. Better hold it right there, Sample. What? Marlowe. Why the gun? So the same thing won't happen to me that happened to the dead little guy outside? Another murder? Marlowe, where's Rhonda? Is she all right? She left here as fast as an eight-cylinder motor wide open could move just after it happened. Then it was Rhonda I saw. On my way over here, a speeding car almost crowded me off the road. It looked like Rhonda's, but I wasn't sure. And Marlowe, she was being chased by another car, a fast one. Chased, are you sure? Yes. The first car missed me by inches when it swung around a curve. I don't know yet how she made it. Then a second car came along and passed the curve, but it stopped, backed up, and then took the same road Rhonda had taken. You think she got away? I don't know. Hmm. Well, come on outside, Sample. I want you to take a look at this. 
By the way, how long have you known Rhonda? About a year. Mm-hmm. She's a brilliant girl, Marlowe. Came out from the East, and I gave her a job as my secretary. She's more than that now, huh? I'm in love with her, if that's what you mean. Yeah, yeah. Oh, here it is. Well, Marlowe, I, I know this man. That's Nate Murdoch. He used to be a foreman with our firm. He left and went back to Atlanta right after Claiborne's death. Atlanta? Isn't your host Thaddeus Grover from Atlanta? I, yes, he is. Oh, brother. When did you see Grover last? Well, the police asked him to go and identify Helen's body. He left the party while the officer was still questioning the rest of us. Yeah, and on the way, he could have taken time off to drop by here, kill Murdoch, and make a try for Rhonda, too. Come on, let's get to the phone. But why, Marlowe? Good heavens, Grover's our friend. He and Helen were engaged to be married. All right, so it doesn't make sense. But his fiancé and his short friend from Atlanta are both dead. And Rhonda's burning the tires off a car to keep out of reach. Those are the facts. It'll make sense later. Now, call Grover's place and hurry up. Yes. That's where she intended to go when she left here, to console him, no less. Scavenger hunt my Aunt Minnie. Hello? Hello, is Mr. Grover there? No? Well, has Miss Langley arrived yet? Oh, it's the maid, Marlowe. Mm -hmm. Rhonda had... What's that? She's coming up the walk now? Uh, Hold the line a minute, please. She just got there, Marlowe. What'll I tell her? Tell her to leave again. Tell her... No. Where do you live? 4406 Ardmore. All right. Tell her I said for her to wait outside in the back of the house until you can get over there to pick her up. Take her to your place and I'll pin Grover down. Right. Where are you going now? See Lieutenant Ibarra, and I can get there faster than I can call him on the phone. Good luck, Sample. Sample was repeating my name over to Grover's maid on the phone as I left. And a few minutes later, at the mobile gas station off Hollywood Boulevard, I found Ibarra looking sardonic in the blinking light from a flying red neon horse above his head. As he flipped through a stack of papers on top of an oil drum. It's about time, Arlo. Where's that client of yours? Now, wait a minute, Ibarra. I had her pegged all wrong. She's a pigeon. Has Thaddeus Grover been here yet? Just left. He's quite a character, that guy. He didn't let him get away alone. Yes, he was... What do you mean, get away? Ibarra, there's a, there's a big connection between Thaddeus Grover and Murdoch, the guy who killed Helen. Now, Grover might have hired him for the job. And now he's trying to get Rhonda. Now, Marlowe, how does that figure? It doesn't, but so help me, Barra, that's the way it is. Well, Grover was heading for his friend Larry Sample's house and he left. Happened to know where Sample... Holy smoke, that's exactly where I told Sample to take the girl. 4406 Ardmore. Well, that's great, Marlowe. They'll all be together in one place. I'll pick up the whole crew in right now. You're going to pick up the pieces, you mean? You think there'll be a showdown? Any minute, Ibarra, it can't miss. Okay, so we'll take some firepower along. Hemagala! Great! Yeah, I... Let's go! Yeah. Come on, Phil. Now look, Ibarra, maybe Sample hasn't gotten home with Rhonda yet. I'll go up to Grover's and try to head them off, okay? Okay, Marlowe. But if you get them before I do, bring them in. And no alibis. I'll see you. Ibarra was grim as he climbed in his car and drove off fast. I headed for my car, then as I turned, my arm swept the scavenger list Ibarra had left on the oil drum off onto the ground. When I picked them up, Rhonda Langley's name was on top. Her list was as goony as the others, but near the bottom was an item strangely familiar to me, which hadn't been checked off. It was a canceled ticket from Woodhaven Ballroom. All at once, I realized why it was familiar. The sign I'd been half conscious of on top of the big squat building across the street read, Woodhaven Ballroom, closed tonight. On a hunch, I dug for Helen Palmer's list. Yeah, Ibarra was right. Everything but a night watchman's badge and one detective private had been checked off. And that gave me half of the switch I knew I had to show up. I ran to my car and headed for that southern mansion in the Hollywood Hills. The end of a very complicated frolic. 
And with every turn of the road, I gave myself another whack for being such a nearsighted sucker. When I got there, the big house on Magnolia Terrace was dark, except for a light in the servants' quarters. I stepped down the block, walked back, and edged around to the patio where the garage, the hothouse, and the king-size barbecue loomed only as shapeless lumps of shadow. I stood still and watched. Then I saw him move, walking slowly, gun in hand along the fence toward the hothouse. I started toward him quietly, just as he found out what he was looking for. Oh, you're clever, my dear. But it's all over now. I know you're in there, so come on out with your hands up. Oh, no. You're hanging yourself for murder right now, Larry Samble. I've got all the proof I need. I don't know what good it'll do you, Rhonda. I'll never pay you a cent for it, you blackmailing tramp. I'll kill you first. And that protection letter you wrote to your lawyers was returned, darling. I found it accidentally in Helen's purse tonight at the party. So no one will know. Now, come on out, or I'm going in after you. I wouldn't try that if I were you, Sample. Marlowe's due here any minute now. He called me and told me. That was I, dear. You? I used his name when I talked to the maid. Oh, I should have done this myself in the first place instead of trusting that stupid Murdoch. Are you going to come out of there? No, and I've got a gun. You can't see me, and I know it. But your white dress makes a perfect target, you little fool. Drop it, Sample. Now let's have that gun. I'm glad you got here. No, no, he's not dead. And he won't be from bullets. Give me your gun, too, huh? Come on. All right. I I was too scared to use it anyway. Thanks. Now sit down and shut up. We're going to wait for Lieutenant Ibarra, then you're both going to the pokey. Listen, you, I don't go for blackmailers, male or female. Even the cute ones are ugly, lady. Very ugly. Oh, Phil, wait. You've got to understand something. Two years ago, Larry Sample killed his partner, Joshua Claiborne. I knew it, but I couldn't prove it. So I pretended I could and blackmailed him. Don't you see, if he paid off or or tried to kill me, that would be proof of his guilt. And he did, Marlowe. Mm-hmm. Why should you pull a stunt like that? I'm a divorcee, Marlowe. Langley is only my married name. Okay, so what? My maiden name was Claiborne. Claiborne? I'm Josh Claiborne's daughter. Oh. And I can prove that. Is that reason enough? Well, why didn't you level with me instead of labeling Helen a blackmailer? Helen was already dead, and I needed your help desperately. I thought I had to lie to get it. Okay? Yeah. Okay, baby. Anyone care for more coffee? How about you, Lieutenant? Oh, no thanks, Mr. Grover. <clears throat> well, Marlowe, you got it all to come out even anyway. <laughs> Frankly, that's more than I expected when I left you at that gas station. Yeah, yeah, we were lucky, Burra. I, uh, guess I owe you an apology, Mr. Grover. Oh, Chuck, that's all right, son. It was a shock to me to be accused of poor Helen's murder, but, well, it's over now. Yeah. Uh... You said it was the scavenger list that set you straight. How'd you figure that, boy? Well, there was a Woodhaven ballroom ticket on Rhonda's list, so she had to go there for the ticket, you see. Uh-huh. A sample knew that. And he told his killer, Murdoch, who incidentally he hired to murder Claiborne two years ago, that the girl who went to the Woodhaven ballroom was his target. Uh-huh. But Helen happened to go there after the night watchman's badge. Which he could have picked up any place in town. Yeah. What a terrible coincidence for Helen. That that was all that saved my life, really. That's right, honey. Murdoch made the mistake, and when he and Sample discovered it, they made another try at Rhonda's house. But I caught Murdoch there, so Sample shot him before he could talk. And when I left, he followed me in his car. I knew they were after me, and I thought for sure they'd killed you, Phil. That's why I ran. Yeah, that threw me for a loop. 
And Sample came back to make sure that Murdoch was dead and sold me a great big bill of goods at the same time. Ah, it's a terrible, terrible thing. Yes, Mr. Grover, it is. Uh, Lieutenant, I want to thank you personally for your participation. Thank you. Thank you very much. Well, I've got everything I need, so I'll say good night. Yeah, me too. Oh, I... Phil. <clears throat> yes? Shall I mail you a check? Why, yes, I, I think... Uh... No, no, no. Wait a minute. Yes? You know, honey, with uh, with your knowledge of postal rates, uh, why don't you uh, just deliver it in person, maybe? Huh? <laughs> Love to. Count on it, Mr. Marlowe. Good night. down from the Hollywood Hills with a check warming my wallet and the echo of a soft invitation warming my imagination. You know, that was quite a party at Grover's house. <laughs> Scavenger hunt. People determined to have a good time even if it killed them. You know what? It did. I know another game. Associations. It goes like this. Grover's party. Rhonda Langley. Rhonda... Hmm. Date. Hmm. I wonder if she likes baseball. Adventures of Philip Marlowe, created by Raymond Chandler, star Gerald Moore, and are produced and directed by Norman MacDonald. Script is by Mel Dinelli, Robert Mitchell, and Gene Levitt. Featured in the cast were Ellen Reed, Mary Shipp, Jack Moyles, Richard Benedict, and Lorette Philbrandt. Lieutenant Detective Abar is played by Jeff Corey. The special music is by Richard Orant. <laughs> Be sure and be with us again next week when Philip Marlowe says... They were born on the same hour and the same day of the same parents. And they were identical in beauty and talent. Only one was deadly and the other was not. And I couldn't tell which was which until I found a green purse, a fresh corpse, and a pair of dancing hands. 